Now are you ready? I am now ready to begin recording of the podcast, Unique New York, Unique New York. Magic the Gathering is a trading card game. The Professor of the Tolarian Academy. Some Magic the Gathering players ask. I don't know what we are doing. We're doing our little vocal exercises. Are you recording? Yes. No, I'm just trying to think of a better... Two, one. Lucky Paper Radio, episode six, coming in hot. I'm your host, Andy, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony, pack one, pick one, sulfuric vortex, Maddox. Every time. You, you did it. You just, you went in hot on the Roto Cube, and you decided that for our rotisserie draft, you were going to take sulfuric vortex first. Talk me through the mind of an Anthony. When that pick comes up. I mean, I don't want to stand for all Anthony's, but I, I think I think most Anthony's would agree that Sulfuric Vortex is just such a powerful magic card. You can't turn it down, pack one, pick one. Four out of five Anthony's agree. Um, we are in the middle of a rotisserie draft, which we, we teased a little bit last week, of, uh, of my cube, which we were doing with our local playgroup. Anthony, it has been like the most fun I've had in a long time. Dear listeners, I highly recommend doing a rotisserie draft with your uh, playgroup if you have not done one. So I, for those that aren't familiar... A rotisserie draft is just you take turns choosing from the entire available card pool of the cube, and uh, you kind of go in an alternating order, like snaking across, uh, you know, the the rows, and uh, just taking whatever cards you want. And it's all picks are completely transparent to the rest of the table, so you get to see what everyone else is doing. And uh, it's been going very slow. <laughs> We've been doing, you know, a couple picks a day, it seems like, but it's been a true joy. And you, Anthony, decided to stake your claim and just draft mono red and force it. I mean, that's what you assume I'm doing. Uh, I, I really don't think it's fair for me to uh, talk about my strategy here. Okay, sure. If you don't want to disclose, you don't have to disclose. But you did take that sort of... I, I, don't, I know you, Anthony, as somebody yes. who maybe doesn't love aggro. And so this was, a, this was an interesting choice, I think, for you. Uh, why do you say that? I don't think that's true at all. Well, you tend, I feel like, to... In your, like, EDH decks, mm-hmm. in your other opportunities mm-hmm. for, like, your own, crafting your own world, I feel like you tend to be very interested in some of the, like, what people would call, like, a Johnny or a Jenny, like, the cool interactions mm, between yeah. cards, yeah, the, yeah. like, the fun little, you know, if you combine this with this, you get to do this. Your battle box, you know, has your white main lion and your Oketra's oh monument God. combo. Oh my God. Uh, you know, these kinds of things, I feel like, are what I tend to associate with an Anthony when I think about magic. What I don't associate with an Anthony is, like, throwing all of these little cute interactions aside and just trying to get your opponent's life total to zero as fast as possible. And yet, you have planted your flag in this Roto draft, and that is what you are doing. I mean, what, you, what you're not appreciating, what you are appreciating is that I am a man who loves synergy. I love that uh, you can put a card into a new context, and it can work differently. Uh, and and what is more synergistic than Sulfuric Vortex? It does nothing on its own, but if you just put it in the right deck, it makes everything tick. It definitely does not do nothing on its own. Yeah, yeah, it, it does it, some stuff. It does an arbitrary thing. It just rolls the dice for you. You know what's a cool synergy? Uh, burn spells plus more burn spells. Exactly. Right. Yes. I'm here. Mm-hmm. I'm here. It's mm-hmm. Friday night. I'm, I'm here ready to burn. Anthony, we're both drafting flavors of aggro in this rotisserie draft. I uh, one, of, one player in our playgroup pointed out that I very often end up drafting aggro in my own cube, and they thought it was a, a sort of predilection of mine, something I'm predisposed to. And I think in my in other in cube environments that could be the case. I do like to be proactive and I do like to avoid cards that are only situationally good. And if you kind of 
you know, follow those two threads, you end up being a kind of, you know, proactive aggro deck pretty often. But in my own cube, I'm the designer of the environment. I feel pretty strongly that all of the decks are relatively equally supported and all are very viable. So I try to draft what's open, and uh, I felt like at this table, aggro was just open. But you and I are the main aggro drafters. We had an episode last week where we talked about the draft of your cube where we ended up with like a four-color, five-color good stuff uh, deck taking taking home the, the trophy, and that's kind of aggro adjacent, but we didn't really talk about aggro. So this week, Anthony, thought we should talk about aggro and tell the tale of our relationship to this beautiful this beautiful axis on which to measure the game all right get aggro on me let's uh, let's start off with our our listener submitted pack one pick one though and uh on theme this week we're going to be doing a uh, cube that is curated by the uh the user cat of craft you'll find cat of craft on the mtg cube chat discord and this is a cube that i really really like i have in my head like a pantheon of cubes that are curated by my friends of ours and you know online online acquaintances that i i really admire and this is one of them the uh the quote-unquote fast cube is really an experiment in pushing the cmc overall curve of the curve of the cube as low as possible while still maintaining viability for all the different macro archetypes still being i have control decks and whatnot uh, and the one stipulation I love about this cube is that shuffle effects are prohibited. There are no cards in this entire cube that shuffle your library, search your library, uh, which means that games go quite a bit faster because you don't have to bother shuffling. So I think that's a really cool little stipulation that Cat of Craft has put on this cube to make it embody fastness in all of the ways you, one can possibly do that. Yeah, I, I honestly I like that a lot. I mean, I remember when we were... Uh... A little bit newer to Magic, and before we really discovered maybe the joy of playing Fetchlands, um, just like wa- mm. watching people play Modern and Legacy or uh, whatever people are playing, and they're just sitting there shuffling their libraries back and forth, and it's like, I want to play my cool creatures. Why are you taking all this time shuffling your library four times a turn to get these tiny edges? Uh, and there's 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 a lot of uh, there's a lot of joy in that, but also I appreciate just saying like let's let's just not take our time to do that. When you don't know what's going on, when you're when you're new to Magic, watching a match of Legacy or you know even worse Vintage is maddening. It feels like they're speaking a different <laughs> language and you don't really know what's going on. Especially if you're watching with like some some coverage, but maybe it's coverage that's pointed to like more experienced players. In which case they'll be like, "Oh well, so and so clearly has the advantage." And you're looking at the board state and they're like hands, and you're like, "How does that deck have the advantage? I don't understand at all." It's definitely a the, the meta is very pronounced there. You got you got to learn what you're doing to understand those formats. Anyway, Anthony, you are doing, you're reading the pack this week for our pack one, pick one. I don't think we're going to have to read as many of the rules text of these cards because the Fast Cube does feature a, a good smattering of the sort of typical cube cards that we see in a lot of people's cubes. It's, it's kind of a power-optimized Fast Cube. So uh, I think we'll only read the ones that maybe are a little bit off the beaten path. But are uh, you ready to read that pack? I am not. My internet's uh, Cube Cobra has exploded. Oh, that's a bad time for that website to explode. Let me see. Is it exploded for me? It is not exploded for me, so I guess I'll read the pack this week, even though that was not the plan. Uh, I've got, I've, I've got okay. one now. If, if... Oh, you got one? Yep. All right. Well, hit me with it. Let's go. All right. Out the gate. Ready? Jace, yep. architect of thought. I like Jace. I think uh, I, I, I often refer to Jaces that are not Jace the Mind Sculptor as lesser Jaces, and I, I count this among the lesser Jaces, but... Uh, even though I'm, there's nothing about this card that is particularly exciting to me, I do think it is very strong and probably 
uh, underrated by average cube designers. It is not that much worse than Jace the Mind Sculptor in most cubes, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm with you. It, it definitely protects itself in a way that actually is relevant in lots of different board states just by uh, reducing the power of all your opponent's creatures, which doesn't seem as strong, but really interacts with a lot of board states uh, and still generates a lot of card advantage. So I've been wrecked by it plenty of times. I think I like uh, this particular lesser Jace quite a bit. But yeah, I will say the the plus is probably extra relevant in a cube called the Fast Cube, where I expect there to be a lot of low CMC cards, lots of lower power creatures, maybe wider rather than taller board states. So, oh, yeah, that's, yeah that's I think it's is, is very good in this environment. Yeah. All right, but does it beat out Mana Leak for you? Mm. No, I... Gosh, I would probably start on Mana Leak. It's just more generically good. It's hard to imagine a blue deck that wouldn't play Jace, but it is double blue. Maybe I end up you know, much more heavily in one color, uh, which would make me want to have a Mana Leak instead. So... I think I would take Mana League over Jace. Yeah, I mean, you you say that in a way like, I, I don't really want to be splashing Mana League, but it still is just so much more efficient. And, uh, well, I guess I guess maybe a question that we, I want to ask at some point is, um, similar to your cube where there is actually kind of like a, a much, um, many fewer options of the high high CMC spells. Like, do you, do you start valuing mm-hmm. a four drop more than you would in a normal environment? Probably. I think part of it for me with four drops, five drops, six drops is that really you don't actually need them to win the game in a lot of environments. I think Fast Cube definitely included among them. So while it's true that their stock might go up a little bit, uh, I could still have too many of those. And I cannot imagine having too many two CMC counterspells. Um, I will fully admit, though, this plays into my my disposition, my values, and could be completely wrong. I tend to overvalue very flexible efficient things and undervalue just like here is a good card that's just good and it's worth the four mana you play for it because i i really i'm really drawn to like a very focused efficient deck which means i don't draft the greed piles that oftentimes are correct to draft or even not even we're talking about a greed pile i will oftentimes not draft the like sweeter more powerful thing because i'm trying to basically eat my vegetables i think i eat a few too many vegetables when i'm drafting cube frankly all right, how about some snake meat? Uh, Ophiomancer. Ophiomancer is very good, extremely good against <laughs> aggressive decks, and this cube has a lot of aggressive decks, but uh, it does feel to me not as desirable as something like Mana League. Wow. Mana League is just universally uh, universally good. I, I'm not going to take Ophiomancer. I would probably take Ophiomancer after Jace, too. I think this is probably the, the least appealing card in the pack so far to me. Wow, I'm a little bit surprised. Uh, I mean, I think that in a, a cube that's very focused in aggressive decks, like uh, Mana Leak and, and Jace seem a little bit more situational, and Ophiomancer is just it, one of the most amazing cards that's just dumpstering aggro. So I I like Ophiomancer here. Ophiomancer is good if you're on the defensive. It's not it's not good at attacking. It's it's you know if you're playing three mana for that and you're you're the beatdown, then it's uh, it's pretty underwhelming and pretty below rate, I think. Um, so I, I see it as actually somewhat narrow in that if I'm drafting that, I really want to be maximizing it either in a control deck or a slower mid-range deck that needs ways to uh, to gum up the board because it doesn't have rafts usually in a mid-range deck. Sure. Yeah, I guess it also works better in, in a context where you have ways to sacrifice your snake tokens and do something else with it, which I don't think there's a ton of in this in this context. So, there could be. I'm not actually sure. And and that's this is again 
this is where I, I don't value that very highly, but that could just be my own blind spot. Uh, maybe it's correct to say, you know, here's a card that has a much higher ceiling. And, you know, a Flea Master does have a very high ceiling. You pair that with a free sack outlet, you're getting a lot of accrued value turn after turn. You know, you, you curve this into Yawgmoth, and it's going to be a real problem for most of your Oof. opponents. But, but, um, but yeah, I, I just don't see it as, as universally useful as something like Mana Leak. Fair enough. All right, next up we have Threads of Disloyalty. So it's a mind control for two CMC or less creatures. For one blue-blue, right? One blue-blue. I think this card is cool. I really like it in this environment, given that we have a lot of those cards, but I don't rate it super highly. So I would not take it over any of the previous blue cards we've heard. Uh, it'd be close with Ophiomancer probably for me, but I'd probably still be on Ophiomancer. All right. How about Spell Pierce? Ooh, I like Spell Pierce a lot. I really like Spell Pierce. I think I would take Mana Leak over Spell Pierce, though, but it's honestly close for me. I think if I knew the environment better, I would be able to say more more accurately what I would take there. I think it is close, but I think uh, specifically because a lot of these proactive decks are about adding efficient creatures to the board, for me, Spell Pierce goes down a little bit. Like, obviously, you want to be efficient and... You can't get much more efficient than that, but not being able to uh, actually remove somebody's proactive creature uh, with a counterspell seems like it takes a lot off this. Yeah, there do seem to be a fair number of planeswalkers in the list, which is one of the one of the main things I look for okay. when I'm trying to decide how highly to rate uh, spell pierce. But I'm going to take it after miscalc here. But it is worth saying I do like it. I think it's also worth noting that these tax counterspells, which I think are I think the good tax counter spells, like the ones we've seen here, are good in basically any environment, but they are even better in environments where there's where the decks are faster. Because you basically, if your opponent is more likely to curve out, then you're more likely to get value off of these spells, even if it's not on turn two. It could be still turn three or four or five, and you're still likely to, you know, get some value off of them because your opponent's going to be multi-spelling or, you know, still using all of their mana. So I, I, I like them here, but I'm, I'm going to take Miscalc over, over Spell Pierce. Uh, I think you mean Mana Leak. Yes, manly. Take good notes. What are you on here? Are you on Ophiomancer still? I really do like Ophiomancer a lot. Um, I I think that it's something that... uh, The floor is very high, I think, because even if your opponent has a shock or a bolt, you're still left with a 1-1 death touch creature, which is... uh, Assuming they don't do it on your turn. You've got to get to their upkeep. That's a good point, yeah. Yeah. But I also see that it just has an extremely high ceiling if you do have any ways to to benefit from sacrificing those creatures. It does seem like maybe the highest ceiling card in the pack. I mean, I guess in some ways, something like a Spell Pierce or or, uh, Mana Leak is the highest ceiling because you can pay two mana to negate a six mana play or whatever. But um, but yeah, I I think the the build-around sort of engine potential of Ophiomancer is very real. Yeah. All right, next up we have Thassa, God of the Sea. So it's a three mana for five five indestructible. It is not a creature unless you have uh, five blue devotion. Uh, at the oh god, it's got so much going on. At the beginning of your upkeep, scry one and <laughs> pay two. Dark creature can't be blocked this turn. Yeah, this um, I, I know this cube a little bit, and I uh, have looked at the list before, and I know that there is a kind of mono blue tempo deck that is extant in this cube. Uh, we do have uh, that triple blue Tempest Gin from Dominaria, for example, and, you know, some aggressive blue one drops, which you don't often see in, uh, in many people's cubes. So that, to me, is a, like, signpost card of that deck. I don't really want it unless my deck is very, very heavily blue and intending to be proactive. 
But if I am, uh, it's a good payoff. But uh, for that reason, I'm not going to take it highly. I'm going to hope to get it late if I end up being in that deck. All right. I think that makes sense. So second non-blue card, uh, Fatal Push. Push is good. Um, I rate Push higher than Ophiomancer, but below the blue cards we've talked about. Interesting. What about you? I, I think in this context, I I think you're definitely right that Push is probably better than Ophiomancer, but uh, it's sad to me. But it, it pains you to say it that, really doesn't does. it? It really does. It really does. I mean, the snake token, every upkeep. I, I think um, I think Fatal Push is actually kind of a wash here in a uh, a cube like as compared to a cube like my own because there are more lower CMC threats, but also no shuffle effects. We have no fetches in this cube, which is oh, one of the main ways you can like reliably yeah. trigger revolt. Um, so I feel like you are significantly less likely to trigger revolt here. So I think you're basically treating this as like a, you know, destroy target creature CMC two or less, which is still very good. Cause again, we do have a lot of those here, but uh, I don't really, I'm not going to rely on that revolt at all. Right. Yeah. But I mean, that seems really relevant in this context. So honestly, between like fatal push, Manalik and Ophiomancer, these all seem like very uh, potent ways to interact with the battlefield early. Uh, this is, this is a tough pick and it's only going to get harder. What do you think about voracious Hydra? I know this is one of your favorites. I love this card, uh, but it is not good enough to pull me into green. Um, this this cube has a sort of full suite of one-mana mana dorks. The green deck is a very like fast, proactive, mid-range deck uh, from what the list is telling me. And I really want that card in that deck, but for me, I basically all I'm getting into that deck is by opening mana dorks, like one CMC mana dorks. I take those above anything else in green, uh, really, I'm seeing in this cube list, and uh, that's how I'll get into green, and then I'll want to get this Voracious Hydra, you know, mid-pack or something as a uh, sign that green is open and, you know, a payoff for all those mana dorks I took. All right, a reasonable take. Uh, next up, we have Eidolon of the Great Revel. Very committal, but uh, also very powerful, and potentially even more powerful in a cube like this. You know, we have a higher density of car- spells with converted mana cost three or less, and uh, Eidolon punishes those things. So this is very committal, but I think the highest payoff of any card in the pack. So if you're going on pure power level, I think Eidolon is probably the pick for me, but I'm not going to pick on pure power level, but pack one, pick one, unless there's something really outstanding that like leaves the rest of the competition in the dust, and that does not quite do it for me. It's, I think it's better than Mana Leak in, the, in my deck at the end of the day, but I would rather have Mana Leak because it goes in more decks. That makes a lot of sense. How about... Do you agree uh, or disagree? I, I agree. I mean, I, I'm not an expert at drafting mono-red aggro, um, uh, as you can see by my list over here that I'm sure you're looking at. Um, but I think Eidolon is sort of middle of the pack for me, um, and I, I'd like something else to draw me into it than, than Eidolon. Do you want to refute that? No. I mean, uh, I think if you're sitting down to like force an aggro deck or something, which a lot of people do, some people do just really like playing aggro and then this will be like an excuse to get into it uh, i could see taking it very very early but yeah I, I wouldn't want to commit to a double red card until i know if i'm going to get past more red cards frankly yeah all right treetop village is up next i don't rate this super highly i have a i have a hard a difficult relationship with this card in that i think it is very good but even i myself kind of wince a little bit when i put it in my green decks because i just know i'm gonna have you know, those turns where I want to play some card, but I have to play this dumb tap land instead. I mean, turning into a 3-3 with Tramble for 2 mana is a very, very good rate, and the cost of a tap land I know intellectually to be a very minimal cost. But uh, 
especially in an environment like this with so many low CMC threats and lots of multi-spelling and using your mana very efficiently, um, I wouldn't take it very highly, but I'm not sure I'm right about that. Yeah, I think that's a good point about this being a like specifically aggressive environment that the tap lands are going to hurt you more than normal, but I do like Treetop Village quite a bit, but yeah, I don't think it's going to beat out some of our, our uh, leaders here. Next, we have Omen of the Sea. Omen's great, but not as good as Miss or as a Mana Leak. I keep wanting to call it miscalculation. Not as good as Mana Leak, I think. You just can't get Karn's cute face out of your head. I have, Do you like that art, or do you loathe it? I mean, I, I, I'm neutral to positive, uh, but since one of our friends made it their avatar in our uh, Discord channel, I'm, I, I've gone even more positive, because when, when, you, <laughs> when you cut just the face out, it looks adorable. Oh, <laughs> well, the science experiment's gone wrong. We didn't oh, calculate God. correctly. The flavor is just perfect. Uh, I love it. Yeah, no, I'm I'm all in. I'm all in on miscalc. Uh, <laughs> I kind of like the goofy art. It's 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 fun. So Twilight Mire, will that push you off anything? That is the filter land, the Golgari it filter a, land. Yes, correct, correct. <sighs> so. Here's why I'm torn. I, I like to take fixing highly, but in cube environments with fetches, I have a very easy out, which is that I basically say I take fetches over almost anything. There's like a small class of cards, maybe like 10 or 12 in my own cube that I would take over a fetch land, pack one, pick one, um, because they are so open picks as well as being fixing. Here, this cube lacks fetches and therefore lacks fixing lands that are not just duels. All of the fixing lands in this cube are just combinations of duels so i treat duels like gold cards in my own cube which is to say i'm not gonna i'm almost never gonna first pick a shock land it's, it's actually pretty much impossible for me to imagine a pack where i want to take a shock land out of my own cube pack one because it is a gold card i'm gonna want to be in both those colors before that card is useful to me i also run two copies of each shock so i feel confident enough that i'll be able to find you know the one i need for my own for my fetches later on but here if I want to prioritize fixing, I have to take a dual land early. I, I have no option of taking a sort of open pick. I mean, there's like a City of Brass and a Gemstone Mine and a Mana Confluence and a Paliano in this cube. There's four open lands, which I would gladly take back one pick one over almost anything else. But a Twilight Mire is... I'm just I'm just not going to do it. I, I, I think it's maybe wrong. I think taking fixing is very advisable, but I'm just not going to take it early because it's a, it's a dual land. All right, easy. Heroes Downfall good but uh something i expect to get in the middle of a pack not gonna pull me into black how do you compare that uh, against fatal push hmm so fatal push i think is more flexible fatal push i'll put in pretty much any deck if i'm an aggressive deck it's really nice to clear blockers out of the way really? to help me get through early and still be mana efficient if i'm a controlling deck it will keep the heat off a little bit by removing an early threat uh or killing a mana dork to stifle my opponent's start which i'm very happy to do um Though, if I'm in a, like, dedicated control deck, the Hero's Downfall is much less replaceable. There are not that many ways to reach out and proactively destroy a Planeswalker. So, I guess the answer is, very early on, I would take Fatal Push more highly. If I had a, a hint that I was going to be a control deck, if I was, you know, halfway through this pack and I had taken some counterspells and some, you know, Doom Blades or whatever, I would probably favorite, prioritize my first Hero's Downfall or Hero's Downfall-esque card above removal like fatal push and then once i had one i would probably go back to rating them a little bit lower because i think my relationship to it i think fair enough how do you compare uh, them don't just say fair I, enough say what you think 
what? No, I can just move on and read the next card. This is my privilege. If you want to, uh, you may, but I also care about what you think and feel. I think, based on what little I know about this uh, this particular cube, I think I would definitely take Fatal Push over Hero's Downfall. Um, and if I wield Hero's Downfall, I'd be happy to put them both in my deck. But yeah, having just that cheap interaction seems really, really important in this context. Yeah, I, I always really want a couple ways to proactively remove Planeswalkers in my controlling decks, which if I'm red something control, usually blue-red, Burn Spells fill that uh, slot very easily. If I'm blue-black or some other combination, then I need to be a little more thoughtful about getting a Council's Judgment or getting a Hero's Downfall or getting a, a Swift End, a Murderous Rider. Um, those cards become pretty important just to have at least a couple. Um, I don't think you need a ton because even in cubes with a fair amount of Planeswalkers, your opponent's not likely to cast three or four a game. So you don't need to have a ton of them, but it's really nice to have that option so you don't just get blown out if you have to, you know, tap out for something on turn four and then they resolve a Planeswalker against you. All right, two cards left in the pack. Uh, The penultimate card is Thief of Sanity. It's so cool. It's just so cool. And the ceiling is very high, but uh, it's a gold card. The ceiling is so high. But it's a gold card. Uh, I, I, I can't take it first. I, this, this I think, is like in the same category as like Eidolon. It's a like very committal but very powerful pick that is almost worth taking over generically good cards, but not there for me. I would rather have rather have Mana Leak. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I think I'm with you. All right, last pack. Uh, last pick. Uh, we have Heirloom Blade. Oh, that's a hard one, Anthony. That's a it's genuinely a hard one. This is uh, Usman Jamil is the, the ultimate cheerleader for Heirloom Blade. He has spoken the gospel to me, and I have I have heard the good word. And I find this card to be very potent. Goes in basically any deck except for a really dedicated control deck. You know, you're happy to have it in any aggro deck. Happy to have it in any mid range deck. And uh, both its like baseline stats, the cheap equip cost, the significant boost to power plus three power. And then the uh, the fact that it just generates a stream of card advantage for you if your if your threat gets answered is very potent. Uh, it you know it, it's good no matter what happens. You equip it to a creature, that creature is either huge and you're probably you know bashing your opponent's teeth in, or they kill it and you get to draw some cards and some real cards, some actual threats. Whew. Yeah, I, I'm gonna take Heirloom Blade here because this this cube I feel like has proactive decks in all five colors. I might be mono blue and still be very happy to play Heirloom Blade. So this is like a colorless card that goes in probably almost any deck I'm going to draft and has a very high upside. So uh, it takes me off uh, Mana Leak. Did not expect the last card to take me off Mana Leak, Anthony. I'm not going to lie. I expected it the whole time, but I I need the pack. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm totally with you. I mean, like, Heirloom Blade is a little bit of an investment, but the really key thing is it actually has an extremely relevant power and toughness uh, boost. It has an extremely cheap... Uh, equip cost and generates card advantage and that combination is just extremely powerful for uh, an equipment so i'm also on heirloom blade i don't think our our picks beyond that are going to line up but uh I, th- I think we're both in the same pack one pick one usman would be so proud i can't wait to tweet this at him yeah uh heirloom blade's my pack one then it's mana league for me and then honestly it might be having seen the whole pack it might be jace i think those are probably my top three picks out of the pack all right, I think I'm going to go Heirloom Blade, followed by Ophiomancer Jace, and then Mana Leak. That's very close, Anthony. 
it's pretty similar. Very similar stuff. I just I just think in this context, I don't want to be holding up a counterspell in turn two. I want to be able to do proactive stuff or do stuff that uh, interacts with, with my opponent's aggressive aggressive draws. Yeah, uh, that that is a very reasonable observation about something like Mana Leak. I, I, I would be very happy in this cube to, you know, play some threats on turn one, two, and three, and then, you know, starting on turn four or onwards begin to start holding up mana leak and maybe also deploying some smaller threats alongside each turn, which is kind of what the mono blue deck, the mono blue tempo deck can potentially do. But um, yeah, like I I think that card works outside of just pure control, though it is trickier. I, I I love playing tempo decks, you know, which is a kind of a notoriously ill-defined term in, in magic. Like what exactly is a tempo deck? Like, what does that mean? Um, And for me, it basically means that like, uh, I am going to be, I want to be proactive, but the way in which I'm going to be proactive is instead of just going super fast and trying to go under my opponent and be the aggressor and be a pure aggro deck and like leave them stuck with cards in hands because they're dead on turn five or whatever, uh, I'm going to instead prioritize slightly higher value threats, which I'm then going to basically protect with counter magic and also use counter magic to keep my opponent from turning the corner, resolving some threat that would, you know, change the board state in their favor. Um, so it's like get ahead early, and then instead of you know closing the game out with just a density of super super uh, super efficient threats, I'm gonna you know get ahead early and then use my control spells to try and maintain that lead. Um, but that is not a clearly defined thing, I think, in Magic. I think a lot of people tempo deck means a different thing to a lot of different people. Yeah, that's definitely true. All right, well, thank you, Cat of Craft, for letting us pack one, pick one. Your fast cube. We will put the cube link in the show notes. So if you want to check out the fast cube, and I highly recommend you do. I gotta say. Uh, all the cards we just heard in this pack are cards I'd be very happy to put in my deck, uh, which is a which is a thing I love about this cube. There is very little like air or fluff in this cube. It's all kind of just good, efficient cards that you're happy to play. So uh, thank you. And uh, if you want to have your cube featured on Lucky Paper Radio, you can email it to us for consideration. Our email address is mail at luckypaper.co. And uh, make sure you include how you want to be credited. That can be your actual name, your screen name, you know, whatever, uh, and your pronouns. And we will put you in our big spreadsheet of cubes to do on a listener. Pack one, pick one. All right. On to the topic of at hand, Anthony. So as we discussed in the opening, we are both in the midst of drafting aggressive decks in a rotisserie draft of my cube. We talked a little bit about aggro-adjacent ideas last week. And uh, we just did a pack one pick one of the fast cube, which is a cube that has lots of aggressive decks in the environment. And I thought it would be productive for us to just talk about aggro and our different approaches to aggro. Um, For me, the best way to kind of tell this story is to track my, what aggro has looked like in my cube over time and then kind of arrive at how I think about it today. Um, So my cube is like four years old at this point, maybe four and a half. Uh, I maybe started putting cards together for it like four and a half years ago. And the reason I started building a cube was mostly because of LSV's cube draft videos from Channel Fireball, which he posted on YouTube and, you know, streams sometimes. Um, I didn't really know what cube was outside of that. It was one of my first exposures to it. And uh, I loved watching those videos and still do to this day. I still try and watch most of uh, his cube drafts he posts on YouTube and catch a stream sometimes. And uh, it's just, it's so fun to watch a skilled, experienced player navigate a powerful, complicated environment. And uh, the natural variance that is introduced by a cube draft, by watching someone draft and then play the deck they drafted, 
uh, is to, for me so much more rewarding than watching somebody you know grind out a bunch of matches with their constructed deck or whatever, which has its own nuance and interest to it, right? Like I totally get why people have a lot of fun watching how this matchup is slightly not in our favor and how can we sideboard to like change that to be slightly more in our favor. And there's a lot of you know stuff to be learned there and, and ground to be covered, but just not as exciting for me as watching someone draft a cube. So having watched him draft a bunch and sort of do that, I decided to start putting together a cube list. And it was primarily also just an outlet for me to play a bunch of cards that were stranded in my trade binder that I just liked. Cards I thought were cool. And this was, you know, cards that are banned in EDH, which was the format I was playing primarily at the time. Cards that I really liked but just weren't really good in EDH. Um, Like, I specifically remember thinking about wanting to play opposition and just being like, well... I'm not going to, like, opposition lock three other people at the table. Uh, Or if I can get to the point where I'm doing that, I already have 50 creatures in play, and I can probably just win in a much more direct way, Uh, not really the kind of strategy that you can do in in EDH. Um, I was really drawn to, like, those kinds of, like, really tempo-oriented strategies, right, where I'm going to, like, slow this game down a little bit, I'm going to deprive you of some resources, I'm going to just, like, just shave a little bit off of what your deck can do to get an incremental advantage over time. I like those kinds of cards, but they were just not... There was no place for them in the formats that I was playing. So those two things are why I first made a cube. And it was largely inspired by Magic Online Vintage Cube uh, and by, you know, like the default, uh, like average cubes on Cube Tutor back in the day. They have like a feature where they would just, you know, show you the basically the 360 most popular cards that are played in cube to, as an average 360 card cube. And that was very influential for me in like finding st- quote-unquote staples of the format that I sort of didn't know were popular. But um, the first version of my cube, I didn't... I was not thinking in terms of aggro, mid-range control. I was just thinking in terms of, like, here are cards that I like and think are cool. I'm going to put them all together. And as a result, I had some of the, like, staply aggro cards in the cube, but I did not have a density of aggressive cards such that you could reliably draft an aggressive deck. So I had, I think, I don't know, I want to say, like, five one drops in white maybe like three in red just the ones i thought were cool i wasn't playing stuff like jackal pup or whatever Uh, i was just playing cards i thought were cool and through talking about cube online with other people through reading some cube theory uh, i eventually kind of learned that you know aggro didn't really work in my environment because i was playing these just a small handful of these cards that were kind of like you know the cream of the crop maybe for these aggro decks and i was like i'll just play the best cards in those decks i won't play all these other like you know chaff these like you know c tier cards for those decks um but those cards just simply don't work outside of a deck that has a very dedicated proactive strategy a very linear sort of aggro deck and um so over time i increased the support for aggro in my cube and i also have to say that like early on especially because i approached cube by watching lsv draft lsv does not often draft aggro decks when he's you know streaming which I think is partially because it's not his favorite thing to do and partially because he thinks it's maybe less entertaining to watch. Um, so I didn't have a lot of understanding of how one drafts and plays an aggro deck, and it wasn't interesting to me. So I was not drafting aggro a whole lot. Um, when we were doing drafts of my cube, some people would try and do like a red-white deck with you know fast cards, but it didn't really work at all in the early days because it didn't have enough density of those cards. And when I finally added them, uh, I got to say, for a little while, I became kind of obsessed with aggro because, for me, it's kind of does this really fun magic trick where so often magic feels like it comes down to who has just the best cards in their deck. We talked about this last week with uh, with Jay's deck from your from your draft where 
sealed can often feel like this at a pre-release sometimes even drafts of you know normal sets are like well cool you got past three rares in your colors like awesome like sweet skills um and obviously like that is not that's that's a way you can end up feeling bad but it's not really a huge contributor to like you know win percentage and stuff like that like at the end of the day i think i should have like played and drafted better and i could have gotten around those situations where i lose to cool rares but oftentimes magic can feel that way where it's like damn i just didn't get as powerful cards as you did and so i'm not gonna win this game um or it's, it's a feeling people often express about constructed magic it's like i can't afford the powerful cards therefore i can't play modern i, I don't i can't afford a modern deck um and so for me aggro kind of unlocked this very um it was kind of this magical thing where you were going to play a bunch of cards that are all individually less powerful you know powerful in terms of like impact on the game than all of the cards you're in your opponent's deck right your opponent's green mid-range deck like every single one of their cards one-on-one if you were like you know playing a a variation of like the card game war where you just flip over a card and decide who wins like their deck would just beat you 95 percent of the time their cards are just all better than your cards but by their powers combined, these like little dinky creatures and uh, you know these little dinky uh, you know, tempo cards or like equipment or whatever can be combined to rob your opponent of access to half of their deck because they're just dead before they get to even cast those cards. Uh, and aggro became one of my favorite things to do into drafting cube because of that magic trick because I get to you know kill you while you've got a Jace the Mind Sculptor in play and it feels cool to do that. It feels very uh, very sort of rewarding to draft that kind of deck. So. These days, my uh, my cube has what I would describe as like a fairly uh, typical aggro section. I have you know a lot of one drops in red and white specifically, and I have I would say medium support for black aggro that I have uh, lots of complicated feelings about, and um, always trying to push my aggro decks to be monocolored. And I, I see them as um, people sometimes call aggro like the fun police, uh, which I don't think is a very charitable name for aggro because I think aggro is fun and. Uh, it also requires skill to pilot, which I see people oftentimes deriding aggro as just you run out your threats and hope it's good enough and there's no, really, no real strategic decisions to make. Um, but I do think of aggro as like, this is the deck that should show up the most consistently in every draft. Like there should be good aggro decks and they should perform very reliably uh, in most drafts. I'll tolerate more variance in my mid-range decks and control decks because they operate on a different axis. They want the game to go longer. They're trying to combine cards in ways that are novel, right? You know, the the sort of A-B combination in a ramp deck of like, I need some ramp, I need some stuff to ramp into. And this, this combination is going to make something powerful. Um, that's more complicated than an aggro deck, which just says, I want some stuff to kill my opponent and more stuff to kill my opponent. And uh, it's a little bit more linear in that sense. So I, I, I see aggro as a very consistent thing in my, in my uh, cube. And that consistency means that one of the first priorities for any other deck that is not aggro is how to beat that deck. And I want people that are drafting control decks in my cube, mid-range decks in my cube, to have to think, what am I going to do when my opponent goes turn one, one drop, turn two, two more one drops? How am I going to win that game? Uh, and that, I think, ends up being one of the sort of most important things that affects the meta of my cube, is that every other deck's relationship to the aggro deck. Anyway, all of that is a long way of saying that... Uh, for people out there that maybe don't love aggro or maybe haven't gone to that point within their own cube, um, I found a sort of revelatory moment in adding enough one-drops, really, and it comes down to one-drops because of how man-efficient they are, and we'll maybe talk more about that later, um, to make my cube have a fast enough aggro deck to basically put all the other decks on notice and make them, you know, not play four colors because if you miss your mana for one turn, you're basically guaranteed to be dead, or, you know, not run some 
proactive blue ramp deck with just upheaval and no other interaction early because you won't get to there before you can do your sort of dirtily combo. You have to think about how you're going to survive to the late game. Um, and that's been a very important thing for my cube. Now, Anthony, I've, been, I've blabbered on for a long time, but that's my relationship to aggro. And I'm, I'm curious to know, your cube, as we talked about before, is very intentionally kind of eschewing the typical descriptions of not just aggro decks, but also mid-range decks, also control decks. You're like trying to change how your environment manifests these ideas, these abstract ideas. So I'm curious to know how you think about aggro in your environment and like what it means for the fastest deck in your, in your cube to exist. I mean, like you said, I'm, I'm going to stick to my guns. I don't want to throw in the 12 Jackal pop variants, but I think that aggro plays a really important, uh, role in that I want to have these different synergistic decks and I think that if there is no deck that can just put pressure on your opponent then you end up drafting five color mush and you're just taking the best cards out of any any color and doing whatever you want um so I really want there to be fast enough decks that can actually put pressure on you that you need to like you said both uh draft to have a strategy and like have efficient enough mana and have an efficient enough and focused enough plan to deal with that um or a synergistic enough plan of your own to be able to combat that um so i, th- I think that the the fun police is exactly the perfect way to think about it that you shouldn't just be uh doing whatever you want and taking all these like widespread individually powerful cards um because the fun police will come out for you um but I also want to, uh, you know, as we've talked about, play a lot of these tap lands, not necessarily include the suite of uh, Savannah Lions and Jackal Pups. Um, so where I've been focusing on the aggressive decks is more on how do we give them reach? How do we give them a way to close out the game that's not necessarily just playing a bunch of much cheaper creatures? So I have a couple questions for you, which I think are just interesting things to explore. So one question i have is every environment if you take any cube if you just made a uh, you know you write a computer program to spit out 360 random cards into a cube uh you know from the entire catalog of all magic cards that exist in that environment there will be a fastest deck and i'm curious to know if you think about aggro what's the relationship between aggro the archetype and just whatever the fastest deck in the cube happens to be are they synonymous the fastest deck is always the aggro deck are they you know coincidental like sometimes your fast deck is an aggro deck sometimes it's not like what, what's your relationship you think between the fastest deck in the format and an aggro deck uh i just want to throw that question back at you because i i really hate using a lot of these like terms of art where people have a lot of stock in these terms um and if I say, like, oh, yeah, this is the aggro deck, people will say, well, no, you don't have any one-drops. Like, that doesn't qualify as an aggro deck. Um, and, and to me, that's not interesting. Like, the, the, I, I don't care if that's there. Um, so, like, what, what do you think most people mean when they say an aggro deck? Well, yeah, that's what I'm trying to basically define for us. I, I, I agree that I think aggro is kind of poorly defined. I think some people just define it as the fastest deck that's the aggro deck or some people to your point on the very other end of the spectrum define it as like a deck with lots of one drop creatures that uh you know is going to play as many savannah lions and jackal pups as it can and kill you and that to me is a very reductive definition of what the aggro deck is um i th- i think that in order for a deck to be 
an aggro deck in an environment and not just the coincidentally fastest deck in the environment, I think it has to stand a very, very good chance of going under the slower decks in the environment. Like, if you imagine, like, a spectrum of, like, deck speed where you have, like, you know, bell curves for each of your major archetypes. You have a bell curve for aggro's deck speed, a bell curve for mid-range's deck speed, and a bell curve for control's deck speed. And we'll, we'll say, like, speed is, like, the point of the game where they start, you know deploying their threats that are going to actually win the game for them, right? The control deck might do that on turn 10 or whatever. It doesn't care. It just has to get to the point where it can deploy its win conditions, whereas the aggro deck really wants to be deploying its win conditions as soon as possible, mid-range is somewhere in between. I think if those bell curves overlap too much, then you don't actually have an aggro deck because uh, if your aggro deck is not going to be able to deploy all of its threats and put enough pressure on the control deck to answer those threats before the control deck is like, well, maybe I'll just win now instead. I'll just play my own condition instead, and we'll just, like, race. Uh, that I, To me, that's what aggro is. Aggro is a deck that's like, I exist explicitly to go under all these other decks and generate card advantage by stranding cards in their hand. If every deck in the environment always gets to cast all of its cards, then I think you're in, like, pure flavors of mid-range territory. Okay, so you're saying, like, we can have the fastest deck, and that'll be beaten by a deck that's a little bit slower... And that deck will be beaten by a deck that's a little bit slower. And then what qualifies as aggressive is if you're aggressive enough that the slower deck just has the slowest deck just doesn't have a chance to do anything at all, and you just beat them before they can actually get on the board. Right. There's a there's a very good mantra in Magic. I don't know where this originates. I should probably find the source and put it in the show notes. But uh, you know the saying that you should always try and go a little slower than your opponent or a lot faster. Um, You don't want to be a little bit faster than your opponent because that just means that they probably in that sort of, you know, half turn or turn, maybe even two turns of tempo that you're trying to win the game on. uh, They're going to be able to use those two turns to play bigger, better stuff. And those two turns are often not going to be enough for you to, you know, change the outcome of the game. So the aggro deck really has like four or five turns of tempo advantage, like. In, in an aggro control matchup, like the aggro deck is usually ahead for the first four or five turns of the game, and that should be enough uh, to basically you know lock them into a into a winning position. Um, so yeah, th- that's how I define it. I think if I think if you're in a situation where the fastest deck is still potentially just losing to you know value cards from the slowest deck that is just playing the most powerful cards it can, that's why I think you end up in an environment where you know, something like a five-color control deck or, you know, a deck that just takes fixing and the most powerful cards becomes favored because you don't have to care about the fastest deck because it's never going to go so fast that you can't cast your cards. And so you're just going to take the most powerful cards and that's going to be how you're going to win the game. Well, I, that, that that does make me think in a little bit of a different way and that maybe that I, I shouldn't say I want to support aggro in my cube specifically. Um, but I do want the fastest deck to be relevant. And when you sit down and draft... Um, I want you to think, what is the fastest deck in this environment, um, and how is that going to affect my draft decisions? Which I, I feel like that's totally relevant in a lot of limited environments where you wouldn't just say, like, okay, I'm just going to take all the best cards, I'm going to pick every rare, and I'm going to take, you, you know, play a bunch of basics and just draft a, a five-color nonsense deck. Um, because you know there is a faster deck, and I, I think that can work in a cube environment as well. It will just take some tuning. Absolutely, because what I want to emphasize about my definition is that, like, it is not reductive. Like, by that definition of aggro, there are untold numbers of things which could constitute as an aggro deck in a given environment. Um, And I also want to be careful not to... This is probably a somewhat controversial take that we should maybe go into in greater depth in a later episode when I've had more time to 
sort of solidify my thoughts about it, but there is this sort of widely held uh, heuristic in Magic, which is that control beats mid-range, and mid-range beats aggro, and aggro beats control. This is like rock, paper, scissors people have in mind for the sort of macro archetypes. Um, and I don't think there's any actual fundamental truth to that, because I think in reality, it just comes down to what kind of cards you put in your cube, and it's very possible that the control deck, quote-unquote, could have... Lots of cards that are very good silver bullets against the aggro deck, but no, you know, removal spells that kill mid-range threats. Let's just say that your control deck has nothing but disfigures, dead weights, and shocks, and your mid-range deck plays nothing but three toughness threats. Uh, now your control deck is going to dumpster every aggro deck because it has tons of removal that's very efficient at one mana to destroy aggro threats, uh, but it can't kill the mid-range stuff. And you could do that for any matchup and basically make any matchup favored in any one direction or another. Um, and so really like the way in which the aggro deck can be favored or the fastest deck, the aggro deck, whatever you want to call it, can be favored against the slowest deck in an environment could look like anything, right? It could just be that, you know, the aggro deck plays a bunch of flyers and all of the good blockers uh, don't have reach <laughs> and are on the ground, right? And that could be your like definition of aggro. And the way that deck wins is just, well, we don't have any board wipes or we don't have any things that can, you know, generate a ton of card advantage and destroy multiple creatures and a bunch of evasive threats are just going to win the game. Um, and so, my cube is is exploring much more developed and trod territory for what aggro can be, and that is primarily very efficient cheap threats and uh, you know some support spells that bolster those cheap threats and give reach to decks that otherwise don't have reach uh, to basically go under all other kinds of decks. Um, and that's something that I was able to benefit from the theory and the work of cube designers that came before me and whose articles I got to read, who I got to speak to on discords, who I got to sort of, you know, listen to on podcasts and on streams and YouTube videos. Uh, and that helped me get to where I am today with your, with my cube. What you're doing, I think is a much more ambitious and interesting thing, which is you are not saying my cube is like these, this other kind of class of cubes. Therefore I can learn exactly from them, how their aggro decks work and try and adopt it. You're essentially trying to invent a new kind of aggro deck. And you, you just said yourself, you want the fastest deck to be relevant. And so you're trying to figure out a way to make that fastest deck relevant without compromising the other things that you value about your cube and your environment, um, which I think is worth noting is considerably harder than doing something someone else has already done a million times. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's been very hard. <laughs> you sound tired, I, Anthony. You sound worn by the world. I feel, yeah, it's just like that. Yeah, mm-hmm, yep. The world is a, is, a, is a bad place right now. I understand. Um, so I'm, we've spent a little bit of time over the past couple of weeks talking about ways to make the fastest deck in your cube relevant. And I thought we could talk about some of those ways. One thing you potentially have been floating and have been interested in is like land destruction or mana denial or some other means of punishing greedy decks. So you play these balanced lands, you play you know, these fixing lands where you only have a couple of red sources. Maybe if I can fulminator mage your red source or whatever then uh, i can get an advantage can you talk more about that idea of giving the fastest deck that kind of advantage over the slower decks so more specifically in this environment uh we have the bounce lands so these are the lands that come into play tapped and you also have to return a land to your hand but then they tap for two mana so they effectively are a tap land that draws you another land which is awesome i love them i love that they are all being played in all the drafts that we're doing um, mm -hmm. but, uh, if you're playing an aggressive deck and your opponent plays, let's say a, a temple, a scry land on turn one, and then picks it up with a bounce land on turn two, and then plays it again on turn three, and you're just 
beating them down, but then you don't have that reach. Um, it feels bad because your opponent is clearly just saying, I don't care what you're doing. I'm just going to use these resources as the, you know, take advantage of all the value that these resources can give me. Um, and I don't care about interacting with you because I don't think you can, you can be fast enough. Um, so that was sort of one of the reasons, I mean, that was the only reason I was thinking, well, maybe land destruction in a small way could be an interesting way to combat these extremely greedy strategies uh, after I had seen them again and again. Um, and I think I'm not quite ready to go that far, but I'm definitely trying to look at other ways that we can just, again, give these decks more reach, where if your opponent does take these greedy lines, builds these greedy mana bases, um, how can we give the aggressive decks a way to actually win the game once they can get their opponent down to a low life total after they're sort of stalling out for the first few turns. I want to get on my soapbox about uh, the pillage versus avalanche riders argument we were do having a, a moment do ago. But, but before I do that, I just want to say that I think what you're describing is a very interesting way to give the faster decks, again, the terminology is all fraught because people have associations with what aggro is and you know right, maybe can't right. hear the term in a sort of clear, unbiased way. But to give the faster decks... Um, instead of, uh, you know, the way of punishing them by just being fast enough that the tap lands are too slow, become a liability, uh, maybe make them a liability in a different way by, you know, providing enough ways to interact with those lands that it's a genuine risk to kind of put them in your deck. Um, and my only thought about that is that I think for me, one of the really important things about my aggro decks or the fastest decks in my cube and what I've learned from them is that the consistency is so key. And uh, when your deck is full of 12 one-drops and eight two-drops and, you know, a small smattering of sort of support cards that are, exist to sort of bolster those strategies, your plan each game is pretty similar. So you can reliably say, if my opponent goes, you know, temple into bounce land into temple, by the time they have their first untapped three mana of the game, they'll be at eight, right? <laughs> like, you can pretty reliably say that even with a mediocre draw, you can put a lot of pressure on an opponent if it's being that slow. Um, I think my only concern about the land destruction uh, or other kinds of man denial strategies is that there aren't as many competitively costed spells that provide that effect such that you can reliably say, if my opponent plays a bounce land on turn two, I will get to remove it and sort of stifle them. And it becomes more of kind of this, you know, variance coin flip thing. Like, well, the games where I got to Avalanche Riders, their bounce land, I smoked them. And the games where I didn't, I still lost the same way I've always lost. Um, and I... I I'm wary of those kinds of cards and their impact on a cube environment because it starts to feel like the drafters of the greedier decks, if what I'm concerned about is 8 to 10 land removal spells in the cube, it's probably not enough density for me to actually change my drafting and gameplay decisions based on the possibility that might happen. Instead, I'm probably just supposed to still play the best deck based on what I think is best, and some games I just get got by an Avalanche Riders, and then I have to scoop them up and say, well, that just happens sometimes. Um, but it's the consistency that really makes it so the opponents have to dramatically revise their strategies and say, actually, I just can't do this, because I know that you know two out of my three opponents will be putting enough pressure on me or doing whatever they're doing such that these things become a liability. So I think that if the land destruction thing is going to work, it needs to be like either at a sufficient redundancy and density that there's enough of those things going around that it's a pretty likely outcome of playing a bounce land is that it gets threatened in some way or it's bolstered by other similar strategies that are not necessarily land destruction but are other ways to punish these decks such that 
a deck that's playing against any other deck knows that if they're not going to face land destruction, they're going to face some other uh, challenge that uh, is basically out there to kind of, you know, give them a, put them at a disadvantage, something else, uh, and basically make it so that no matter what, the faster decks always have some way to kind of challenge those slower decks. Does that make sense? It does. So, I mean, it's it's sort of like um, we were talking a little bit about enchantment removal in the black cube and how... Uh, you know, in an environment where you're only playing black cards, uh, if there's only one or two cards that can actually destroy enchantments, it just becomes this, like, weird, extremely high-variance element where if you're going to play your Lich's Mastery and then you play against the one opponent that can sideboard in this one card that can destroy it, uh, you're... In the (laughs) quarter of a game in which they'll draw it. Right. Uh, It's just... It doesn't actually add that much interesting play space for you to try and make complicated decisions it's just sort of like this weird sideboard card you can throw in and every once in a while has this extremely swingy effect and it'll be similar here where it's like okay i guess i'll take this fulminator mage very late and it doesn't really impact my draft it doesn't really send a lot of signals anyway but every once in a while i will sideboard it and it will just destroy my opponent um and that's not actually fun gameplay so like there there needs to be a density that you can actually um, play against certain effects or play with certain effects. Um, so yeah, I think I think I'm off it for the time being. Um, but you specifically mentioned pillage. Let me get back to that in a sec. I'll get to my pillage soapbox. Okay, we'll get, get there. To your pillage. But um, I want to your point you just said though. Um, I, I want to be careful not to write off that kind of variance as inherently unfun. It's not. It's something I avoid in my own cube for the reasons I just described. But I think there's a lot of players that actually really like that kind of variance. Um, and oh, the, sure. the, way that, the way that manifests in other cubes, like for me, a powered vintage cube is extraordinarily high variance because, you know, uh, on a third of the games some decks play, they're just going to have a turn one Mox or a turn one Lotus, and they just start with an enormous advantage. But for a lot of players, it's like just the thrill of that high roll of sometimes being able to start the game with an enormous advantage and win by turn two or whatever is, you know it's worth it for them. And, and like doing it for that kind of like fun and that thrill is, is part of it, you know, playing show and tell, right? Like, like yeah. show and tell. I think people, I think people like show and tell and not just because it's fun to show and tell your own Emmer cool, but sometimes it's fun to show and tell your Sundering Titan and your opponent puts in an Emmer cool. And then you just have to, you know, you know, chalk it up to the, uh, the insanity of the world that this is how this game is playing out. So, uh, I, I want to be careful not to, uh, if you're listening and that's what you're out, you're in for, like, by all means go for it. I, uh, that's just something I am conscious of in my own cube because I, I don't want my players to feel overly punished by RNG and just feel like, well, I had no chance in this game because my opponent had turn one Lotus or, you know, turns out show and tell just was the worst card from my deck this game because my opponent had an Emrakul or whatever. Uh, I try to avoid those kinds of things, but some people like them. And uh, so for, for that, I think it works totally fine. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. I think that it's so funny to me how... I don't, I don't, it's hard to talk about it without being just like you said like moxes are extremely high variance and I feel like a lot of the players that like to play with these high powered cards think of it as the more serious version of the game um, it's not serious at all dog you got to play a, you got to play two lands one of them was a mox that's not that's not serious it's, that's, a, it's, that's some joke shit it's such high variance to play a mox um and yeah, on, I, on the other side, like, just, just being accepting of the variance, when you're saying, like, I have show and tell, 
Uh, and this is a, this is a, you know, eight out of 10 times. This wins me the game on the spot, but just being comfortable saying, I just, I will put this card on the table and I will say I'm 80% to win. Let's, let's go. Let's see how this plays out. Um, and being comfortable with the 20% where you lose is also fine. So yeah, I think, I think, I think that the, the people that enjoy that high power gameplay should also respect the fact that they are appreciating the variance and the people that are maybe frustrated with the variants, which might be the same people, should uh, <laughs> learn to just... Uh... Very diplomatically put, Maddox. Very, very carefully put. I like how you weave that, weave that uh, tapestry. I'm, I'm yeah, doing my I mean, best here. Vintage Powered Cube is a Timmy format. Uh, it is not... I mean, you can be spiky in it if you want, but you are just going to lose some games, no matter how spiky you are, because your opponent just, you know, free rolls you. Um, which is true of all magic, right? Like you just lose games to Man of Strew, no matter how you know careful and diligent you are with building your deck and mulliganing. Um, but it's more likely in an environment where people have Black Lotus. That's just a fact of the game. So everybody's got to find that amount of variance they're comfortable with, of course. Uh, I, I think that me as a player, I never want to play the show and tell. I just never want to cast it because You should. I, you should try it sometime. It's fun. Because <laughs> I, I don't want to put a card in my deck that's going to sometimes be the exact thing that loses me the game. Like, it is my fault I lost the game for doing that thing. I'm not... That 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 sort of uh, high that's, roll is not... No, no, Andy. That's a terrible That's thrill. a terrible way to think about it. You can't say, oh, my opponent showed me a bigger creature and I had nothing to tell and I lost the game. You're playing the card because you say, when I play this, I'm 80% to win the game. I understand. I'm, and I'm if, saying and, this and, is a, this and, is a and when a when the And when the 20% comes up, you have to eat it because you are you are maybe sixty percent to win the game without that card. No, I you are right. If I was <laughs> playing to pure win percentage, there's plenty of environments where you could make a very strong argument that it is higher EV for me to play show and tell, but I still don't want to, is my point. And what I'm saying is that this bleeds into my cube design because I as a player don't want to play these cards, and therefore I as the person I am imagine drafting all of the decks in my cube, I don't want to build an environment where players are rewarded. I, I don't want to build an environment where you are 80% to win if you cash show and tell. Therefore, it is correct to do it because then, we, we've talked about this before, like the, uh, one of Mark Rosewater's main, uh, well, he has so many different ideas. I even call it a main idea is not fair because he has so many ideas he talks about all the time. He's often talking about how you should make the thing that is correct to do, like a thing that will like, it, make the player win the game, also the fun thing. Uh, and to me, an environment where we take turns casting show intels and seeing who had a better hand uh, is not the fun thing to do, even if it's the right thing to do. So that is a big sort of thing I use when I'm deciding how to balance my cube and what cards to put in it and what cards to exclude. It's been an hour, and it's taken us this long to bring up Mark Rosewater. I think this is, I think this is a record. Do you think we'll ever get him as a guest on the show? Uh, I... You're thinking about it all wrong. If we could be a guest on his show, I would. I would just drool my face off. Um, do you think I could keep up with Mark Rosewater in terms of density of talking? I do like talking a lot, no. but probably not as much no. as Mark Rosewater. You're you're a close second, but no. I, um, I did talk for about 25 minutes straight in this episode without you saying a word. So I wasn't going to bring it up. Uh, I could but give him but a run this for is this money. is this is Mark Rosewater's. Uh, number one point for me is is the the find the fun, and I think that as a cube designer, that that's like what I think about so much more than anything else is that you have to make what is fun also the the powerful thing, and that's why I make so many decisions. Is that like if if a thing that 
is actually the way to win isn't a fun way to win. I will try to tweak it so that that's no longer the case. Right. I agree. I think that's a very important thing. And this is directly connected to the conversation we were just having about aggro decks because that is part of the consideration here. So, you know, uh, let's just say, for example, that in your cube, uh, you have one aggro deck, right? And your opponents uh, play an eight-person draft, and uh, the most aggro decks you can really have at the table is one. Um, If that's the case, then uh, me, uh, as a person playing your cube, if I'm not the player drafting aggro, then I know that I have seven possible opponents that often play across three possible rounds, and at most, one of them will have an aggro deck. We're exactly in the show-and-tell situation now, where me building my deck to beat aggro is not a high EV win. Instead, I'm just supposed to say, I built my deck to beat all the non-aggro decks. I just go slower than everybody else. And you know what? The times that my opponent free rolls and they have Ember Cool in their hand, aka the times my opponent is actually playing the aggro deck, I'll have to take some losses probably. And that's just, that is the correct thing to do. It might not be fun to build a deck that just loses a matchup, but it's probably actually correct if you have a cube that has exactly one aggro deck that comes together. Um, And that's, so I, I think an important thing for, there's a lot of cube designers, and your cube is kind of on the spectrum, I think, where, like, you think about the cube kind of in terms of, like, color pairs, and, like, those color pairs have strategies, right? Like, they're archetypes. They're doing something. Archetypes in a, in a more micro sense than just control arc, aggro or mid-range. It's like there are themes of, you know, artifact matters or spells matter or whatever. Uh, and I think a lot of designers that are thinking about cubes that way will try and say, okay, well, I need aggro because everyone tells me I need aggro in the cube design world, so I'll just make the red-white deck the aggro deck. Uh, and... That only means that not only we only have at most one aggro deck because red-white is your aggro deck, but also there's 10 color pairs and only eight drafters in the average pod, so some drafts you won't even have any aggro decks. And now you're putting yourself in a situation where if I'm a player drafting your cube and I'm not drafting aggro, it is incorrect for me to try and think about aggro at all. It's not a consideration for me. And what I want in my environment is for aggro to be the boogeyman that... If I'm going to build a sweet deck, I have to be constantly in fear of the opponents that I know I will face that will have proactive, fast decks that are going to challenge me and sort of pressure me and keep me from just doing my, my slow thing. So that's the only thing I will say about anybody out there thinking about their aggro decks is that uh, you, know, you have to make it a real consistent threat draft to draft. Otherwise, it's just not correct to build against it, and then you end up in the same slog. Because then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If it's not correct to build any decks to play against it, then... Now it's just not good to play it either. I mean, well, it's good to be the one aggro drafter, but and then you end up maybe splitting that up a little bit. But uh, now you have a bunch of players that are all in agreement that the dominated strategy is just to build the sort of slowest, grindiest deck that can beat the other mid-rangey or controlling decks, and that's how you get into a problem. Problem. I mean, it's 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 like we want to say find the fun, but we can't just say, well, we'll just like make this synergistic deck that it plays all five colors and everything works and it's just it's just great like if you just take all these cards everything's going to go great for every time there's no challenge there um so we need to we need to create that card evaluation we need to listening back to our own episode we did i think maybe steamroll a little bit over how hard it is to just figure out what the best card in each pack is which i do just want to acknowledge because we did say and you said it and i agreed in the last episode that like there's no challenge in drafting the best card of every pack but I think there actually is, but it's a, it's not anywhere near as deep or nuanced a challenge as finding what's open, drafting a strategy that has a plan or something like that. Right. Yeah, so so I mean if you're saying at a table of 8 players, if one player and, and honestly also we should we should say that 
the fun is different for different players, and some players just like drafting a very aggressive deck. Uh, and if one or two players drafting an aggressive deck can put a pressure on the rest of the table to try and draft in a way that's much more careful uh, and much more respecting the way that they're going to play, uh, that actually adds a lot of fun. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, so Pillage. I have thoughts about this. Um, you were talking about uh, Pillage in your cube when we were talking about these potential... You basically did like you know a big Scryfall search of all the cards that destroyed lands or interacted with lands in a way for when you were considering this package in your cube to bolster the yeah. proactive decks against the greedy decks. And in that conversation, you were weighing the pros and cons of each. We were talking about Avalanche Riders, which... Avalanche Riders shows up in a lot of cube lists. I, I dare say there was an era, you know, five, six years ago, maybe more, where it was kind of a staple. Uh, almost every red section would have an Avalanche Riders. Um, for those that aren't aware, this card is three and a red for a 2-2 with haste, and when it enters the battlefield, you destroy a land. I think you can destroy any target land. It might be a target land opponent controls. You wouldn't target your own land most of the time. Um, then it does have Echo. So uh, if you want to keep your 2-2 after the first turn, you do have to pay the 3 and a red again on your next upkeep. Um, because 3 and a red 2-2 with haste that destroys the land would be excellent. That would be incredible. Um, so the echo makes it quite a bit worse. Um, and this card is, a, a, again, shows up in a lot of cubes. And I see prominent cube players rating it very highly. I, I mentioned LSB in this episode, who I, I love watching his streams. He will oftentimes even splash in Avalanche Riders in his, like, blue controlling deck and i'm like what what is going on here um and i should be clear like my attitude when i watch someone like lsv draft who uh drafts very differently from me and is playing a very different environment the magic online vintage cube is very different from my own cube um my attitude is always like i have stuff to learn from this this person and that's true even when i'm not watching you know the third best player in the world or whatever i, I always try and learn whatever i can from people that are drafting so even if they're doing a decision i wouldn't do my my attitude is not they're wrong. My attitude is like, what could I be missing about this? Um, either way, Avalanche Rider is kind of beloved by a certain subset of the cube community. Um, and Pillage is a card that shows up much less frequently in cubes. Pillage is one red red for a sorcery that destroys either a land or an artifact. And uh, I was saying to you when we were talking about these cards and their various merits that I think Pillage is considerably better than Avalanche Rider's uh, and sees way, way less play. Uh, and my argument here is that the two damage you get from Avalanche Riders, assuming you have a clean attack, and it, even if you don't have a clean attack because it has Echo, it basically never gets blocked unless it's a real threat to your opponent's life total because they're not willing to trade off with a creature that you would otherwise have to pay its CMC for or lose anyway next turn. Um, so realistically, it's kind of like a, you know, a stone rain that deals two to your opponent. Uh, and then... In very rare circumstances, if you have literally nothing else going on, maybe you pay another four mana just to keep your Grizzly Bear, uh, which is a pretty bad deal. I mean, eight mana for that effect is quite poor. Um, so my argument is that like people basically over under, underrate how much of a drawback the Echo cost is and don't... Basically, somehow Avalanche Riders gets considered less narrow because it's an effect staple to a creature than pillage whereas like i think most people would acknowledge that like stone rain or pillage is a very narrow card right it's an aggro card that you really is only good if your opponent is well behind so you can keep them behind if they already have an established board destroying a land is not really relevant you'd much rather have anything else um and avalanche rider seems to get away from this uh analysis because it's stable to a creature and i think people have this idea that like universally 
when effects are stapled to creatures, they are much more flexible than when they are not, which is generally speaking true. Like, you, you know, getting a body and some effect is going to affect the board and also give you some that effect in question, which is better than just getting the effect itself. But in the case of Avalanche Riders, that echo cost means that it really is not the case, except for 2% of the time or whatever. 3% of the time you're happy to pay that echo cost on Avalanche Riders. So my whole, like, soapbox is just that I think Pillage is a better, more flexible card than Avalanche Riders, and... Uh, Avalanche Riders is a victim of this heuristic, this like shortcut of people assuming that Muldrifter-style cards that have an effect when they enter the battlefield are inherently more flexible because they're also creatures, when that is not the case with Avalanche Riders, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think your core point that uh, you wouldn't just play Pillage in a deck in uh, in my cube because it would be just as high variance as a lot of the things you're you're trying to counter. Uh, by trying to play a more consistent, more aggressive deck, uh, in that it's just it's only relevant if you draw a good hand of plenty of lands and creatures and can actually get ahead on board, uh, and then sometimes you can stifle your opponent with it. Um, but it it is so tempting just to say, well, this does do two damage to my opponent. It does, you know, interact with. Uh, anything that says when creatures enter the battlefield, when creatures leave the battlefield, if I can sacrifice creatures, I get extra value. Um, but yeah, I mean, when you summarize it, it's just eight mana, destroy target uh, land and get a bear. That does sound pretty bad. And I was hoping you would say that, I think, because this is, to me, this is, I think, your your developing role on this podcast is to be the one that says, but wait a minute, Andy, sometimes you get to play Avalanche Riders and then put it back in your hand with Crystal Shard or, you know, flicker it with Restoration Angel. I mean, I, or... I've, I've spent years playing a Felden EDH deck, and it is a delightful <laughs> card in that context. <laughs> and those are all very relevant things. And if you're talking about the cards in a vacuum, those definitely are, you know, little chips you put on the scales on the side of Avalanche Riders, where you say, well, some percentage of the time, I get to do this busted thing. Or even I just have, a, you know, a carrion feeder, and now my Avalanche Riders is a stone rain, and two damage to my opponent's face, and another plus one plus one counter on my carrion feeder. And, like, that eventually starts to add up to some of the actual real value. Um, I think, for me, it's just that, like, if we're comparing, if you're, like, picturing those scales and visualizing the the big weights on either side, like... You know, you've got the the weight of, like, three mana versus four mana in terms of pillage. is like a big, you know, stone. And then the weight of, like, can also destroy an artifact, which is a pretty relevant card type. That's, like, a, a medium-sized stone, too. And then <laughs> on Avalanche Rider's side, you have, like, a couple little pebbles of, like, sometimes I get to do broken stuff, which is, which is very cool and fun. But uh, I don't personally rate very highly. And I think the thing it most gets me is that people, because of that potential will end up playing Avalanche Riders in decks even when they have none of those cards that do that, right? They don't have any death triggers or any of the battlefield triggers or creature balance or anything, but in their head, they're like, well, this does a lot more stuff because it's attached to a creature so I can abuse it in more ways. And their deck just doesn't happen to have any of those things. And it's like, what I, what I honestly, I think I have learned from watching LSV play Avalanche Riders to great success uh, in many cube decks is that I actually think in the Magic Online Vintage Cube, stone rain is pretty good <laughs> you know like i think it's pretty good to just destroy one of your opponent's lands because there's a lot of people that are doing very greedy very slow very grindy things they're you know making greedy splashes you can destroy a non-basic land and lock them out of casting their splash cards uh you know there's just a lot of uh very swingy stuff going on and i actually think that you know it's just good and you can probably just put it in more decks than people would would normally think because 
you normally think about it as such a narrow effect where you got to be way ahead before it's worth destroying your opponent's land because then you paid mana they didn't even pay any mana for their land and it's you're down on mana but um actually what i think i've learned from avalanche right is that it's probably fine uh, more fine in most circumstances than most people would would be willing to admit rude rude destroying other people's lands don't do very it. very rude Anthony, do you have any closing thoughts on how... I, I gotta say, we got some comments from listeners on, on Twitter, on Reddit. People are interested in how you are going to continue to combat this uh, four-color good stuff deck without filling your cube with Savannah Lions. You've been, I'm sure, ruminating on this for, uh, for another week since uh, we last recorded. Do you have any, any sort of parting thoughts for how you're hoping to you know, make those uh, two-color decks that have like archetypal synergies the 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 fun thing and the right thing to do so i mean a big thing i'll say is that uh when i started the cube there were very much you know these 10 uh two color pair synergies and i very much tried to condense it and make sure that any kind of synergy uh is accessible across at least three colors so there's still a lot of depth where you can draft different different things in different ways um and i think as far as just tuning is it reasonable to just figure out what are the best cards? What are like the, the kinds of cards that let you run away with card advantage, this kind of snowball effects. Um, can I just draft that in enough fixing and uh, ignore all of that? Um, I, I think that's just taking balancing and it's been very much a struggle against a lot of sort of um, familiarity bias where cards like, uh, the Gitrog monster, which is ignored for so long until somebody with uh, a little bit more perspective came in and said, yeah, like, even though this doesn't make sense in a lot of cubes, this is actually extremely potent in this context. Um, so I'm, I'm not worried about it. I'm excited about it. I think that uh, a lot of the recent changes we've been making in the discussion we've had is, is just going to lead to a more balanced environment, and uh, it's going to be fun. I'm excited to unpack this rotisserie experience more once we're actually done, which I hope will be by the time we record next week. It's going to be going to be close. It's going to be down to the buzzer. But uh, the familiarity bias, I think, is very present here. Uh, as a cube designer, I find it very enlightening to be able to see how people make their rotisserie picks, which are different than regular picks, and we'll talk about that, I think, maybe next week. But uh, I'm finding a lot of, like more iconic older cards that have had at some point an impact on standard or an impact on you know eternal constructed magic are going more earlier than cards that i think are better but are newer or you know haven't had that impact yet um the one example i brought up today is you know some cantrips like you know opt and sleight of hand are going before cards like hieroglyphic illumination and boon of the Wishgiver, which i think are you know much stronger cantrips uh and they just haven't had the chance to make an impact on people's, you know, hearts and minds uh, the way that these other cards have. And I think that's a very real thing when people draft. I, I acknowledge it myself all the time. I've mentioned in our pack one pick ones, like, I'm drawn to this card because I've played it and I know it's good. And I don't know about these other cards. They might be good, but it's very hard for me to actually use my brain to think about new information and process it. Yeah, I, I, I'm also curious. I think that I've been waffling on this a lot, whether... Whether I should be looking at my rotisserie draft picks and saying, yes, this is a different format and I, sh I should be playing it differently, or is the fact that I am drafting differently, meaning that I have been drafting a normal, you know, eight-person booster draft, wrong? 
Um, and I, I, I think I'm falling on the side of just this is different. And, and I'm, I think I'm making the right choices because this is a different kind of draft. I think but it's I somewhere in between. Be I, I feel like I have learned a little bit more about the... Because, you know, what's happening in an eight-person booster draft is not so different from a rotisserie draft, except that it's secret information. And, you know, one thing that became but very clear in this huge, draft... that's a first, huge difference. It is a huge difference. But one thing that became very clear in the first four rounds of this draft was that you and I were the aggro drafters, and basically everybody else at that point had taken cards that had basically you know, price them out of being aggressive. Uh, so you and I were going to basically split all of the aggro cards, and we're in two different colors, two different mono colors. So you're mono red aggro, I'm mono white aggro, but you in the first, let's see, the first 10 picks here, you took one, two, three, four red cards. Four of your six of your 10 picks were red cards, and I took one, two, three white cards of my 10 picks were actually white. And in the rest of those picks, your six and my seven, we just split the colorless aggro cards that are really appealing in my cube. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons to prioritize colorless cards early in a booster draft, a big one being that you don't yet know what's open. Here, we actually had a better idea what was open because we could see whatever else was drafting. I knew that you were probably planning to play that pack one, uh, pick one sulfuric vortex you took, and we're going to try and draft your deck around it. Um, but even given that information, even given that I knew what was open, uh, you know, it was still, I'm still so much more advantaged taking Smuggler's Copter and Strip Mine and Dismember early because those are cards that all the other drafters of the table are likely to snap up uh, regardless of what they're doing. Um, so I feel like I have learned a little bit more. I This experience, I think, has made me prioritize the generic colorless cards that go in, that are good in many environments even more highly than I did prior because it like lays bare just exactly how you're competing for cards at a table. Um, maybe that's wrong, but I feel like I have learned something about booster draft from doing this. I mean, to me, it just lays bare how, uh, how extremely overpowered GTA and uh, smuggler's copter are. And I'm crushed. I'm destroyed. You got winter orb. I don't which care. This different. <laughs> many would argue is in fact, better than both those cards. I would not. I uh, I don't know. I think it's close. Um, but I, but I was del- I was delighted to take it from uh, James, who had Urza. Urza. Yes, it was very important that you that you got it and not James with Urza. That would be a problem. We'll talk about this draft more next week. I have more to say about it. I think it's a very interesting, <laughs> fun experience. My my uh, my like log line for everyone listening is just: you should do this with your own play group. If you have people that are, I mean, honestly, the games are going to be fun too. But like it would be almost just as much fun to draft these decks and then just talk about them. So even if you're in a place where maybe you're not playing uh, online with your play group or you haven't figured that out or you can't get together with anybody, maybe just do a roto draft of your cube. I think you will have a good time. Everyone likes spreadsheets. Everyone loves a spreadsheet. Also, everyone loves just changing all the fonts and spacing in my beautiful spreadsheet and messing it up. It's, uh, I, had, I had to let go and let God with that. I want people to be able to express themselves. You know, I don't want to be a dictator here. I wish, I wish you'd just... Stop that. <laughs> anyway, that concludes this episode of Lucky Paper Radio, episode six. Until you can find us on what? Until what? next time, don't change the font. It's rude. <laughs> if you're yeah, always listen, everybody. Always reply all to an email unless you have a really good reason not to. You should basically always be replying all. And also, don't change the fonts in the spreadsheet. It's gonna mess up the everything. It's harder to read. Be considerate. 
Anyway, you can find us online at luckypaper.co. We get articles, we get more podcast episodes, we get all kinds of stuff. Uh, I'm using the Twitter account Lucky Paper MT, Lucky Paper MTG more, which uh, is kind of a separate Twitter account I have for talking about magic and the stuff going on, on the website. So if you care about magic, you could follow the show there. Um, you can also follow me personally if you care about socialism and depression at Andy Mangled on Twitter. Uh, Anthony, you're A.H. Maddox on Twitter. You don't use it much, but uh, people can yell at you there if they want. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's the end of the show. Take us on home, Anthony. Close us out. Oh, I thought I did with the fonts thing. Mm. Should we um? <laughs> should we try and do like uh? What what do they call it on LR when when LSV off. does sign off? Should we try and do something where you like have to come up with something every week to say at the end of the show? Is that fun? Well, we used to talk about food at the beginning, but now we've just gone off it. Oh, we'll go back to it. Okay. I had a nice uh, I had a nice torta tonight. Tell me. Oh, ooh. Yeah. Ooh. need to be a torta. Oh my God! For, did you make it? No, I gotta take off from Clavel. I'm jealous. I made dumplings. Ooh, what'd you make? Dumplings. <laughs> okay, wh- what kind of dumplings, you asshole? They were, they were, they, they were beef dumplings with a lot of uh, chili Ooh, oil. Bumplings. <laughs> bumplings. Dumps. Dumps with chili oil and uh, soy sauce. And they were. Uh, dumplings are just like the, the food of pure joy. Uh, I thought you were going to define dumplings for a second. I was like, Anthony, I think we can trust the <laughs> listeners to know what dumplings are. I thought you were going to be like, dumplings dumpling? are a filled starch <laughs> food. No, there's just, there's just. I guess they're not all filled. Some people call like a gnocchi a dumpling, True. and that's not filled. True, but those are not. As Wait, Anthony, what's joyful? a dumpling? I'm not even sure I know anymore. <laughs> so what is a dumpling? Let's go back. This has been what is a dumpling with your host Andy and Anthony. Everybody, go eat a dumpling. Live a good life. I think I had a little too much wine.